Every now and then, I meet someone who's changing the world for the better by their sheer will alone. Whether they're authors, activists, or adventurous, these people are blazing a path with their deep enthusiasm and allowing the world to follow. Their passion is strong, and my passion is to tell their stories. I am Brian Platt, and this is Passion Project. Hey, what's going on, guys? So in this episode of the podcast, I speak with Nina Fascione of the International Rhino Foundation. So what's particularly interesting about, um, well, about IRF and about Nina um, is the work they're doing is going to help all five species of rhinos in three different continents or in three different distinct areas. Um, well, four, um, if you think about, you know, the differences in, you know, how vast uh, Africa is. So you've got the uh, black rhinos and white rhinos in Africa, so mainly in sub-Saharan and South Africa, Namibia, Zimbabwe, and, uh, and Kenya. Um, then there is the Indian uh, rhinos, which I'll give you one guess where that is, um, where they are. There are the, uh, and then there are the Sumatran and Javan rhinos, which you probably haven't heard about, no judgment, but... Um, up until I kind of really started researching rhinos a few years ago or looking into them, I hadn't heard of them either because there's, uh, I think, less than 70 of both. And those are both in, um, well, in Indonesia and up until not too long ago, relatively recently, um, the Sumatran rhinos were in Java as, or excuse me, were in um, Malaysia as well. Um a lot of the topic focuses on them, mainly because I was curious about those rhinos. Like you don't hear a lot about, you know, when you think rhino, you think of the large, the white rhinos, um, you know, the African rhinos, uh, those two horns of those incredible species. And they are, but there are also some much smaller, much more, uh, I guess, plighted species um, in Indonesia. And it's very interesting and this is why I really respect what IRF is doing is they have, you know, not only are they trying to help the African rhinos, which have their own issues and, and their own population trends and their own, um, you know, things to keep in consideration. They're also working to help these rhinos that are in Indonesia as well that most people don't even know about. Um, so we talk about the differences between the species. We talk about the differences between, you know, uh, you know, how African rhinos are a little bit, their population trends broadly have been increasing. Um, there's been a little dip in, I think the, um, I think it was the white rhino species in the past few years, but speaking broadly, their, their populations are increasing, uh, due to awareness. Um, Indian rhinos, their populations are increasing. Um, but the Javan and the Sumatran rhinos are relatively decreasing and also, well, you know, kind of staying the same, uh, frankly, when they're at 70. Um, there's really not much, you know, with different fractured populations, it's really difficult to get them to, um, you know, these species to to increase at all. Uh, so we talked about, you know, what are the, the threats each species spa- uh, faces. We talked about the, um, you know, the opportunities, the potential there. Um, we talked about what COVID could or is doing to the population. Um, and yeah, and on top of that, we talked about like how, you know, people can help, right? I mean, I think that's a big underlying thing that I always like to talk about, that that 
while this is a pretty difficult task in front of Nina and in front of IRF, um, you know, she wouldn't be in this work if she didn't think that there was hope. Um, and that's always so comforting to hear. It's always so nice to, to know that people, you know, can use past experiences, past successes. Um, Nina herself has worked with, I think it was like the Blackfooted Ferret and, and both, the um, uh, red wolves and, and Mexican gray wolves and has worked to reintroduce those populations back to stable numbers. Um, at least at the time, um, some of them have declined since, but the point being she has worked in the past, um, and conservationists and ecologists and biologists have worked in the past to increase numbers, um, of species that, you know, we have as a people have also worked to decline, um, but yeah, so it's nice to be able to work off some of those previous wins and, and use some of those, um, you know, related learnings across, uh, conservation fields. Um, I love the podcast. I love the, uh, subject matter. I think Nina is doing incredible work. Um, and yeah, you know, it's, it's never easy to try and to reintroduce, to try and reintroduce one species in one particular area. I mean, there's a whole boatload of responsibilities and considerations and things to be mindful of, let alone across five different species in, you know, just as many locations. So, um, yeah, I think International Rhino Foundation is doing incredible work. Um, yeah, I think after listening to this uh, podcast episode, you will agree. So as always, feel free to like, rate, follow. I don't know why I say those always so slowly, but I'm trying to make sure I get them all. Like, rate, follow, review, all of that stuff for the podcast. It's so helpful. Um, and if not, just listen, enjoy. Um, and also make sure you follow IRF um, on their social media. That helps. It can't be understated. That helps such a significant amount um, when you get the message out, when you follow, when you just you know increase their online presence. Um, and make sure to follow them on YouTube, um, especially because they've got some pretty incredible footage of very rare. I mean, anytime you get f- footage of species that have only been around or that only have, you know, less than 70 members of it, it's going to be rare. Uh, so they've got tons of footage of, uh, you know, rare Javan uh, rhinos and rare Sumatran rhinos, um, which is very interesting, especially if you were like me. You're like, man, what do these guys look like? <laughs> um they look a lot like rhinos, except for they have, um, you know, only only one small horn, which, as it turns out, makes them even more valuable um, to poachers because their horns are smaller. I thought it was the opposite. They'd be less valuable. See, you learn something. You always learn something. Um, anyways, uh, again, I really hope you'll enjoy. I'm sure you actually sure you will. Uh, it was an incredible podcast. I thank Nina so much for her time and for the hard work she's putting into it. Um, yeah. So enjoy. All right. In this episode of the podcast, I speak with Nina Fasion. She's the executive director of the International Rhino Foundation. So thanks for joining me, Nina. I appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me on. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, me too. Um, when I was researching you, when I was researching the organization, the first thing I kept thinking about was how big of a task this is. The International Rhino Foundation. I mean, there are 
five different species of rhino across the world in different continents. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the population trends by species and also how your work from one continent to the other or from one species to the other has to differ to accommodate that species? Sure. Well, again, thank you for having me and thanks for your interest in this topic. Uh, the International Rhino Foundation does work on all five of the world's rhino species. And as you just indicated, there are tremendous differences with the conservation measures that need to be taken for each species. So um, sh shall we go from Africa to Asia? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's how most people most think about it, I feel. <laughs> right, exactly. So two, two in Africa and three in Asia. So um, the two African species, white rhinos and black rhinos, um, have interesting stories in themselves. White rhinos have, there are about 20,000 white rhinos currently. Um, their numbers had been unbelievably low, as low as 200 in the early 1900s due to hunting and, and poaching and such. Wow. So it took a group of very dedicated conservationists and a lot of hard work and decades of hard work to bring that, those numbers up from 200 to, to 20,000. Yeah. Um, however, after about a decade of relative growth and stability, um, white rhinos have been getting hammered by poaching in recent years. And um, we can talk a, a little bit more about that if you want. So in terms of different strategies for different species, anti-poaching measures, protections is just vital for that uh, species. Yeah. The other rhino species in Africa, the black rhino, fewer of them, they are listed as actually all five rhino species, I should say, are listed in some regard two as near threatened. Um, these are the IUCN uh, red list listings. And then three is critically endangered. And right. the only thing worse than critically endangered is extinct. So that, that's, pretty, that's pretty tough, pretty bad. So uh, black rhinos, I started to mention uh, about 5,600 of those. Um, they are critically endangered again. Uh, they That population number is up from a low of 2,300 in you know, just a couple of decades ago in the early, early 90s. So there have been improvements there, but um, but poaching poaching is an issue as in, in Africa. And so those um, those are the challenges for those two species. And and it, within Africa, the white rhinos, are they traditionally more I know they're all they're in Kruger, they're in a lot of South Africa, right? And the black yes, rhinos. Yeah. Yep, there are black rhinos in in South Africa and gotcha. East Africa, in Kenya as well. Um, um, white rhinos and um, so yes, Southern Africa, not just South Africa, Southern Africa and gotcha. and East Africa for for them. Um, yeah, and actually, white rhinos are the the little factoid. You know, they're the they're the largest of the rhino species. In fact, frankly, they're the second largest land mammal after elephants. Gotcha. Um, and and if if you want more factoids, yeah, I, lay them on I'm me. Just, I'm just throwing them out here. Um, they're not actually white, and black rhinos aren't actually black. They're mm -hmm. both kind of gray. Um, so the the names are a little bit of a misnomer. But the white rhino gets its name from uh, the Afrikaans were describing its mouth. They they're the ones with the big square lip, um, and the Afrikaans word is is was wheat, wheat which. Um, 
you know, European English settlers thought they were saying white. Wide, yeah. Okay. Uh, so yeah, no, yeah, exactly. Um, it, right, when it was wide. Um, so that's exactly right. And black rhinos are just kind of the opposite of white rhinos, or maybe they were called black rhinos from uh, being wet and rolling around in, in muddy wallows or whatever. But huh. anyway, and is neither the, one. Oh, sorry, is the, the white oh. rhino is like, when people think rhino, that in terms of size, in terms of, um, you know, like the two prominent horns, it feels like it's the white rhino that is the quintessential of the species. I think you're right. They are the largest. They are more numerous than the black rhino. They do have impressive horns, although black rhinos also have, have two horns. Uh, but I think you're right that mm -hmm. people, when they think rhino, they think that white rhino with the big, big square lip. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so moving on to numbers in Asia, uh, we'll move on to India and the greater one horn rhino, which are listed as vulnerable. And there are about 3,600 of those left from a low of about 100 in the early 1900s. Wow. Wow. Um, so again, these critters are so critically imperiled, and yet it's it's an improvement. And there's my dog grumbling. We knew that was. <laughs> oh, yeah, we had a timer going for that. <laughs> um, yeah, see, he's so discouraged that rhino <laughs> is in peril. Um, yeah, so greater one-horned rhinos or the or the Indian rhino um, uh, have been in, in their numbers have been improving and. Um, that those are the second largest species after the white rhino, and um, they kind of have a tank-like appearance. Uh, so that is them. Moving on to the absolutely most imperiled of all five species, right. the two species in Indonesia, the Sumatran rhino and the Javan rhino, fewer than 80 of each, probably 72 Javan rhinos left in the world. Both are listed as critically endangered, and um, and it's ugh, there are challenges with conservation of rhinos everywhere. The um, Sumatran rhinos come with their whole set of their own challenges, and hmm. that is um, and that's a tough one that I I know you were going planning to ask me more about. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so though, yeah, those are rhino numbers in a nutshell. Well, so. And yeah, I appreciate that. Like that was what I was researching was that the Sumatran and Javan. Actually, one of those. Can you talk about how they look? I think I was looking at the Javan. One of them's got hair. It's actually related to yeah. like the the yeah. woolly rhino from centuries ago. Oh yeah, good good research. Yes, <laughs> the, that's the Sumatran rhino, which is okay. actually hairy. I mean, all rhinos have hair, but the Sumatran rhino. It looks like it has hair, gotcha. and um, right, it's, it's the close, most closely related to the extinct woolly rhino. They're absolutely adorable, in my non-biased opinion. <laughs> uh, they're small; they're the smallest of the species, um, and um, frankly, not much larger than the tapirs that they share an environment with, habitat gotcha. with. Uh, but they're uh, they're they're super super adorable with their cra crazy hair. Yeah, yeah, they're. Um... Yeah, both of those species, right? The the Sumatran and the Javan. They're smaller than what people think of when they think of rhinos. One tiny horn. Yes. Like they're not often, you know, photographed. A lot of people haven't seen them. Um, so what are the what are the differences between um, the issues that they're facing? I imagine you know it probably ranges from poaching to habitat loss. Um, but why are the the two in Indonesia 
Why do you think that they're struggling the most in terms of numbers less than 100? Yeah, so we talked a little bit about poaching and poaching, of course, is a risk for all five rhino species and protection of rhinos everywhere they exist is foremost. Um, and the International Rhino Foundation supports monitoring and protection programs for all five species. Sumatran rhino, so first of all, when populations of any species get to such low numbers, they're at risk. They have trouble finding each other in the wild, finding trouble, you know, have trouble finding a suitable mate. Um, Fractured habitats. Uh, yes. And there are habitat issues with both species. Right. So, um, and, right. you know, we're talking about species that, ha you know, have one offspring. We're not talking about species that have litters of, right. yeah. of, of puppies and, you know, and, and a population can rebound if you're producing a lot of offspring. But when you're not producing offspring, boy, that's a challenge. And I'm sure the gestation period is probably pretty long for both Java and Sumatra and rhinos, like, you know, it's not not a matter of, you know, a couple months like rabbits. Right. It's uh, frankly 15 to 16 months. Okay, uh, wow, so yeah. exactly, yeah, long, long, long gestation period. And then the offspring will stay with the mom for a couple of years. And so it's quite a few years before they're reproducing again. Um, and and really, there is they're just a basic problem of rhinos finding each other in the wild. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm. I'm curious if the poaching issue is worse in Africa than it is in Asia, or are they both experiencing, like you mentioned, they both experience, you know, both continents experience severe poaching, but does Africa, are they targeted a little bit more in Africa because they're a little bit more valued? Well, interestingly, Sumatran rhino horn is actually considered extremely valuable. Ah, of course frankly, it is. The, yes, of course. Um, the size of the horn, it's considered to be more, more dense and therefore have more properties. Um, we should probably get right out here in the open right. that there is no right. scientific evidence whatsoever that rhino horn does any of the myriad things people believe it cures. Mm. Every Everything from hemorrhoids to cancer and you name it, seriously, you name a disease, right. somebody believes that rhino horn can, can cure it. Um, it's just not the case. Rhino horn is made of keratin. That's what our fingernails are made of. As we like to say at IRF, you know, if you have a stomach ache and you want some medicine to your fingernails, if you think keratin is right, going to, yeah. um, <laughs> I, though on the poaching front, uh, luckily, and I literally knock on wood as I say this, uh, thanks to very, very strong protection measures over the years, there has not been poaching of Sumatran and Jivan rhinos in years. And so I'm happy to report that we can't let down our guard for a second. And we continue with, we have rhino protection units in Sumatra and, and um, in Kalimantan and in Borneo and um, the Indonesian side of Borneo. And um, those are essential. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. But I suspect that there's more poaching with the African species because there are more, there are more, there are more animals, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and they're different environments, right? So the Sumatran and Javan live in jungles, as you mentioned earlier. They're almost impossible to see. Mm -hmm. I actually had the privilege of being in Ujung Kula National Park years ago, and um, you know, there for 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 weeks looking for Javan rhinos, they didn't see any. Right. Uh, they're very 
they're very hard to find. Uh, whereas the savanna critters are you know, a little easier to spot and track and find. Yeah, they're not running away from you. I, I mentioned I did a safari in South Africa, and I'm sure they do run, but the ones that we crossed upon were not scared of us uh, one yeah. bit, nor should they have been. Um, in uh, in Indonesia in particular, is, are there issues? Because I know, obviously, like orangutans, sun bears, tigers, there are declining populations across every, all of those. Um, a lot of that is because of palm oil, because of a decrease, mm-hmm. um, you know, habitat, uh, uh, habitat loss. Um, and it seems like Africa has that a little bit more in control, um, especially, you know, wildlife conservation, wildlife tourism. My wife and I just got back from Uganda um, in November for our honeymoon. And they yeah. have it. It was incredible. We saw the the mountain gorillas. We saw the chimpanzees. Um, but they had it locked down. They had it down to a science. And I've right. always wondered how, you know, for the, speaking broadly, South Africa, Uganda, the countries within Africa I've been to are doing this ecotourism so well that you can see population numbers increase relative, you know, surprisingly quickly. The, the mountain gorillas are increasing. The, the rhinos are okay. increasing. Um, obviously, there are issues, but I'm wondering, is that an, uh, an option? Is that a possibility for Indonesian species, rhinos, sun bears, orangutans? Do you think that is an option or do you think it's just the infrastructure is just different? The the species themselves are different? Well, as you mentioned, there, there are some terrific species in addition to the rhinos in Indonesia. I mean, right. there are elephants and tigers and um, it's a it's a really um, biodiverse area, uh, and one of my favorites, bats. I used to work on bats. <laughs> Lots yeah. of great bats here. <laughs> yeah, so, for sure, huge. Um, so it's absolutely not for a lack of biodiversity or cool critters. Mm-hmm. It's um, and and there is tourism there to be clear, but oh, yeah. it's you know, it's more remote, it's farther to get to. It's a really long plane ride over to Indonesia. Mm-hmm. You know, much, you know, Africa's far, Indonesia's farther. Right. Um, and it's the jungle and you're not guaranteed, it's harder to see things. So uh, so there is tourism and, and there is support that way. But right, it's not the same circumstances as in Africa. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I've, um, I've been to Indonesia as well and I actually didn't, I kick myself for not going, but I didn't go into Sumatra, into Borneo, into that those areas. I did kind of more of the um, uh, like the diving, the diving experiences while I was there. There's so much to do there, but I, I can't help but think, I can't help but hope that there's ways of translating that those successes seen within Africa. Like again, the mountain gorillas, there were people tracking those gorillas and staying with them overnight and knew exactly where they were. I don't think that's as possible with, um, or I'm racking my brain to think of how that could be possible with Indonesian species of any kind, where you just right. have yeah. tours going out. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm just curious if that's even a possibility. Yeah, I mean, just trekking through the jungle isn't isn't for everybody. Right. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, there's like the the leeches thing. There's yeah. <laughs> but um, a little thing called leeches. <laughs> it, may, it maybe takes a slightly hardier caliber of, of tourists, but it's but it's absolutely you know uh, in the mix, um, mm-hmm. just not at the scale that 
we see with Africa, which has been for, for years, Africa has been a tourist destination and, and, and growing and growing with the exception of right now, COVID. But right. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's when people think of Africa, they think of the big five, they think of the incredible creatures they have might not come into mind. Like a lot of people don't probably even know that there are rhinos in uh, India or excuse me, Indonesia and even in India at all. Like I don't right. imagine that's top of mind for people. And, and elephants. Yeah. Right. Probably exactly. Yeah. Um, so before we, you can start a good marketing campaign for tourism Man, I, in Indonesia. Yeah. Cause I am <laughs> that, I'm that sucker who will go, I mean, not sucker, but I'm that person who will go everywhere. I want to see everything, but I also like to know that I'm helping that, that what I'm doing is helping. And, right. and the, you know, the mountain girls of Uganda, like you've got to pay to see, you know, it's like $600 to get a permit to see them. You're pretty much guaranteed to see them, but, um, you know, you're not, you're not, it's not a hundred percent guarantee, uh, mm. but that sustains their ability to live and, and the ability to people to live around them and realize that there is worth. Um, so it's just something I've been thinking about significantly. I know that they're completely different cultures, completely different continents, um, but yeah, it's just it's just something I've been kicking around in my head. Yeah, and I will say that the Indonesian government is is very engaged, very okay. engaged. Okay, that's good. Sumatran and, and Javan rhino restoration. So there, the appreciation of this resource and of the of the biodiversity is is absolutely there. Um, we partner with them; they're a good partner, and um, so it's it's definitely not for lack of interest. It's really just a challenging conservation issues yes. with rare species, hard to find, reproductive challenges, infertility right. problems, and um, and then habitat issues, which we haven't really addressed for these two species, but there are some habitat issues with both of them. The Javan rhino uh, and, uh, and the International Rhino Foundation does some ha uh, reforestation and habitat improvement yeah. work in both areas. So the Javan rhino uh, um, habitat, there's a native plant, it's not an invasive, called the oranga palm, but it's just a very aggressive native plant, and it's not <laughs> a preferred source for the Javan rhino. So International Rhino Foundation and our partners on the ground over there have been working to uh, plant better food sources for Javan rhinos. Also, frankly, Javan rhinos just need um, additional habitat areas. The entire population of Javan rhinos is in one area, which is um, a, a huge risk for any species. Uh, you're probably familiar with the three R's of conservation, the representation, redundancy, and resiliency, talking about the need for, hmm. for, for um, multiple populations of a species to avoid you know, stochastic events, as they say, right. or catastrophic events and such. And so um, Javan rhinos being all in one area have um, none of that. So, right. so that is a goal for additional habitat for Javan rhino. Yeah, if a virus comes in, if, if, if anything comes in, if a potential storm. Uh, There's a really big volcano risk. right there. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, right, exactly. Um, Boy, we kind of live in fear of, as you say, one one event, and um, it could it could you know be lethal for this for this whole entire population. 
And then Sumatran rhinos, we've been working on a reforestation project for there. We had a whole campaign going through the month of June uh, for reforestation um, for Sumatran rhinos. And um, it, it's a really great positive program because we work with local local communities, we work with local farmers, they supply the seedlings, and then we buy back the seedlings, and they do replanting. And, um, and it's just a great way to have community engagement. And in fact, just last week, our Indonesian employee, Inov, was out there with the community on the ground, because we had had this um, reforestation project planned for ages, and we were not going to let COVID stop us. So he said, <laughs> An amazing photos. I feel like holding my phone up to the to the mic to the um, camera for you. Yeah. Um, people on the ground with their masks, staying six feet apart, planting trees, including like little kids. It was just great. He sent wonderful photos, and they were they were planting some good good habitat trees. And then as part of the program, they plant fruit trees as well for the local community to yeah. use. So the people um, aren't, there aren't incursions into the national forest where the rhinos live. So it's totally this great win-win program for the people and, and for the rhinos. That's great. Every time I speak with someone um, who's trying to preserve a species, you can't do it without including the local community. You can't do it without including them and giving them something, you know, let's say if it is the biggest issue is poaching, you can't, expect someone to change a source of income or a potential source of income from this to nothing. You need to provide something. Um, right. So it's good that you're, you know, you're thinking about um, the people who actually, you know, to, for us, um, these species are very, you know, incredibly rare. These species are incredibly, um, you know, special, but maybe for someone who lives by them, they might not be, they might even be a nuisance. Uh, so providing those people with something, um, you know, another source of income is incredibly helpful. Yeah. And I think for people seeing outsiders valuing their resources, it helps emphasize that these are special. These don't exist anywhere else in right. the world. Right. Although, you know, it's in, I, um, I do a bit of work in, in Northern Kenya and it's interesting because even the people that live around the national parks there and the protected areas, they don't necessarily, or they definitely don't have vehicles. So they're not actually going into the parks. So mm. they don't even get to appreciate their wildlife the way tourists do. They yeah. come and drive through the parks in their vehicles. So I've been part of programs uh, with Owasso Lions, um, on, of which I'm on their, their board, where uh, we'll take school kids into the parks to, to see the critters from the safety oh, of a vehicle. Wow. Yeah. So they don't see elephants because elephants come out of the parks and go through the villages. Uh, but um, but it's 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 been exciting for me to see local people have this opportunity to see these special places, uh, the, the parks where where that's conserved for the wildlife. Hmm. That is cool. Uh, I keep going back to when we were in Uganda, um, but it's the, I mean, I was there only a few months ago, just before quarantine. Um and they were, in, well, I'll show you something. Here's a banknote from the you know Republic of Uganda. And on it, they have the mountain yeah. guys. On South yeah. Africa, they money, they have the big five. Like some of these countries right. have done an incredible job realizing, hey, this is what we have. People around the right. world love this, what we have. Uh, and we're special because of it. And it's true. Um, but if in the event that, that there's an absence of that, where the people around... Um, you know, the national parks don't realize what they have is incredibly special. 
a need to instill that and show that, you know, this makes you guys unique. This makes you, you're part of the world, a, a central tourist hub or a traveler hub. Uh, I can Absolutely. see how that could be incredibly valuable. Yes. Um, so, okay. So I, I remember reading an article that about the Sumatran rhinos um, that up until recently they were actually in, because Sumatra is in Indonesia and Malaysia. Sumatras, uh, they were, up until recently, they were in Malaysia as well. Um, is that confirmed that there's no more Sumatran rhinos in Malaysia? And if so, how was the government there in terms of helping them? Were they as cooperative as the Indonesian government? Yes. So Sumatran rhinos range has been diminished uh, tremendously, and they are now only on the Indonesian side of Borneo. Ah, um, and um, so I am not remembering offhand when that last rhino went from Malaysia. I mean, it was recent, wasn't it? I feel like it was. Yeah, it was. It was recent. And I'm sorry, I'm not remembering that um, year right off the top of my head. Oh, no worries. Um, Oh, no, they are they are just in a couple of provinces on Sumatra and in Kalimantan, in mm. Indonesia, Borneo. Gotcha. So it is being decreased, uh, even though they're not being poached. Their habitat is being decreased, which is always a bummer to hear. Um, but okay, so before we started talking, uh, before we started recording, we were mentioning uh, Maggie Howell and how, uh, <laughs> yeah, with um, how she, you know, we've done uh, as you know, uh, conserve, I don't want to say we, but like conservation agencies have done a really good job of reintroducing wolves. Um, so wolves, you know, at least the red wolves were declared extinct. I think it was like 1980, 1989, they were brought back. I mean, they're incredibly resilient um, if given the opportunity. I'm hoping, again, I'm always trying to look for that silver lining. I'm hoping if there's a, um, you know, an ability for that to happen with rhinos. Um, what are the plans? And I know you guys have a whole slew of plans and a whole slew of yeah. ideas. Um, what are the plans for potential reintroduction or breeding, uh, whether it's capturing, breeding, and reintroduction of at least Sumatran and Javan rhinos in particular? Yeah, that's a great question. And also, I love the comparison to red wolves because, of course, <laughs> that was my former life working on wolves, and they're one of my very favorite yep. species. They're the greatest. Um, <laughs> they're great. <laughs> Um, but, but we are at a point, we, the conservation community are at a point where Sumatran rhinos in particular need to be bred in captivity. Mm. It's California condor time. It's red wolf time. It's Mexican gray wolf time. It's black footed ferret time. All of okay. these species that have been on the brink of extinction and, and conservation managers have, had made the decision that the only way to rescue them is to get them into captivity, as was done with uh, the remaining fourteen red wolves. Um, mm -hmm. It's that it's that's where we are with Sumatran rhinos. Um, we need to protect them in the wild. We need to protect habitat and 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 maintain habitat for them in the wild. Uh, we um, and most importantly, we need to breed the species or, or you know, <laughs> without young rhinos, the old ones are going to get older and die. Mm -hmm. um, so just no two ways about it. We need to do captive breeding for this animal. Are you also doing it for the Javan rhinos because they're kind of the same amount of numbers? Or I know there's a lot more efforts for Sumatran rhinos, it seems like sometimes. 
Yeah, and it's partly because the Sumatran rhinos have these mysterious uh, infertility challenges. Hmm. Um, and jungle rhinos, um, you know, do reproduce and with some protections and additional habitat, uh, the, there's not quite as strong and imperative to get them into captivity as there are with the Sumatran rhinos. Gotcha. Um, but I'm not saying that it couldn't get there. I just think the initial steps with Javan rhinos include a second wild population and, and expansion of their, of their range in the wild. Right. Javan, Javans are the ones that are in the more, uh, more dire case. Sounds like. Um, uh, yeah, they're, they're, yep. Yep. Sumatran rhinos, the, 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 the hairy ones, the little hairy ones. <laughs> um, so what about, uh, like I'm particularly probably pretty obnoxious about this, but like, I'm always pretty careful about what I purchase. Right. So I try and make sure, oh man, if I'm getting peanut butter, butter, I don't need to have palm oil in it. Are there things that people can do that can prevent, help prevent habitat loss of Sumatran rhinos? Things that people can do like as a consumer, as a, um, you know, just as, as a person living in America or elsewhere that they can do to protect or to help Javan rhinos and, and Sumatran in particular? So there, that's a great question. Uh, and there are things people can do. I don't know on a consumer scale that there's that much to do. Mm -hmm. I think some of the things people can do are being informed about these species and helping to spread the word. Um, you know, people can help by planting a tree in Indonesia. We, we just had and, and frankly would still accept donations for our tree planting campaign. Um, it, on our website, I know you're going to get this at the very end, but on our website, rhinos.org, we have a whole help rhino section. And so folks can get on there and see the various ways they can, they can help, which in, which includes, um, you know, everything, the whole gamut from, right. you can shop at our store and buy rhino things and give rhino things as gifts. You can subscribe to our newsletter. You can follow us on, on social media. Yep. And in fact, my, my, my uh, personal request to everybody today is to subscribe to our YouTube channel. We, we wow. have fabulous content up there. In fact, Brian, you can see um, we've had some really good job and Rhino videos on there lately. <laughs> um, we have camera traps out in the wild and we've gotten, and um, frankly, our Rhino protection units have captured some great footage that we've posted of job and Rhinos. So, um, I mean, really fun. They got a lot of press hits because the video footage was so fun of, of a rhino rolling in the mud. And one, um, the video footage that our rhino protection unit got was of a rhino swimming, one of the job in rhinos swimming. So um, <laughs> anyway, yes, if you subscribe to our YouTube channel, this is my personal request to your listeners today. Uh, if we get over a certain amount, we get better placement on YouTube. So oh, nice. Why. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, smash that like button. Um, but it, we, we're on all the social channels, so you can follow follow us on any of the social channels. I just I did it. Look at me. Thank you for calling me out because I was I was delinquent in that. But these are great. Oh, good. I'm so glad. Did you see the one rolling? In That's the mud? that was the first one that popped up. International Rhino oh, Foundation. Yeah. This is great. Wow, that's got to be incredibly rare footage to just have. 
yes, well, God love the, all the technology and, wow, yeah. um, the, and the field cameras are great. Yeah. Yeah. And that's was, um, like in an interview, I think it was like with Manga Bay, you said you wanted to use all tools in the toolbox to help, um, save all, all species of rhinos. So, you know, there's obviously video cameras, technology is a lot cheaper for that. What other tools are you uh, considering using to help all species of rhinos or any in particular? There, there's so much technology and it's really great. And I'm, I'm learning, I'm, I'm really into the technology, even when I don't fully understand all of it. There's <laughs> so much and it's cutting edge, but right. So I mentioned the camera trapping. Um, there's eDNA. We're, we're thinking about trying to collect uh, samples from wallows for rhinos and do DNA sampling to see um, genetics and gender and, and sort of, and that's, and frankly, species even uh, for what's hanging out in certain wallows. Um, huh. You know, in Africa, they use technology. I'm just randomly, randomly throwing technology at you here. Yeah, perfect. Um, they use license plate recognition software, so it can capture a license plate, and there's near instantaneous timing of um, license plates that might be of known poachers or, you know, otherwise bad guys. Wow, yeah. um, that software, sometimes drones are used. Um, there's smart technology, which is spatial management reporting tools. It's kind of a patrol data collection technology that helps uh, the patrols kind of plan and implement and, and evaluate conservation interventions on the ground. So there's so much. I feel like it's just a constant, um, you know, race to, to get newer technology. I mean, frankly, it's kind of like a you know, an, uh, an arms race between poachers and conservationists yep. who, who has the best technology and the most technology. And um, so we, we, we try to be on the cutting edge with the research that we support, looking at what works technologically and, um, and then our conservation measures on the ground. Yeah. Yeah. I was, um, and the tough part is, I'm imagining, <laughs> is that especially, you know, uh, African species of rhinos, so black and white rhinos. I imagine those poachers have pretty, I guess all over, but I guess they have pretty deep pockets. Everything I'm reading is poaching in general and wildlife trade is inextricably linked to uh, drug running and, um, you know, uh, even child, tra you know, child trafficking or, or, you know, if you're kind of a, I'm going to be honest, if you're a shitty person, you're not just going to be shitty in this one realm. You're probably doing it in multiple different things. Uh, therefore, having, you know, running a cartel of different type of income streams. Um, is that particularly difficult for, you know, for you? I mean, the fact that there's just so much, there's so much money coming in on the other side to try and take these rhinos. Yeah, you are spot on that we, when we're talking about poaching, we're not talking about bushmeat poaching or people right. you know, that certainly occurs with many species, um, but we're not talking about people, you know, food insecure people trying to feed their families. We are talking about global criminal syndicates um, that have, as you say, big money and, um, and tools and technologies and um and networks so right right yes it's they probably and 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 managing poaching 
isn't really about conservation. It's about law enforcement. Mm-hmm. Uh, so conservationists work in it, but it, mm-hmm. it it's about crime. And you say it's absolutely associated with drugs, with trafficking, with all sorts of other really bad elements. So um, it's it's just a huge global problem. Right. Yeah. I'm. Um, yeah. It's one of those things I've thought. Well, actually, I'll ask you what have you heard statistics or numbers on how many people who potentially might be park rangers might be involved? I've heard that as well, that there are people who are actually working to protect the species, but they're also involved in some way or they know some of the poachers. Do you know anything about that or is that? Yeah, so I've had conversations with our partners on the ground in Southern Africa about how they um, find and hire staff and know that their staff aren't involved okay. and aren't letting people know, you know, giving, um, letting, le- letting people know where, where the herd is hanging out and that sort of thing. Um, so frankly, I, uh, there are, um, various tests that new employees get. I think different, hmm. different reserves and different parks do different things when they hire employees, but absolutely that is a concern to ensure that everyone who is working in rhino protection has rhino protection <sighs> at large. See, that's what I, that's, that's why what you do and what IRF does is so impressive to me is that you're not just working to help one species in one area of the world. You're working to help three different or five, excuse me, five different species in three different parts of the world, um, each with their own challenges and difficulties. And again, with deep pockets on the other side. Um, so again, I think it's a really impressive what you're doing. Um, Thanks. And, you know, um, thank you very much. And it's hard work. It's good work. We feel like we were all (laughs) born to do this work. Uh, If if you have anti-poaching measures out there, you're helping more than rhinos as well. So we certainly partner with uh, folks working to protect all sorts of species and habitats because we're all uh, essentially, you know, combined efforts are stronger. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think initially when we first talked about the the population trends you said that i think it was white rhinos had a really good period of increase and then dropped off i think it was like in the last decade dropped off by a couple thousand yeah um, yeah what was that because of poaching efforts is that because of um something else it is because of poaching poaching um really started increasing in southern africa and most of the international rhino foundation's work on rhinos is in southern africa south africa is in zimbabwe zambia and namibia um so that's where i'm mostly referring to and yes poaching started increasing in oh well actually literally just this morning i was talking to our partner on the ground in, in zimbabwe who said most people think it really picked up in 08 but it was probably sooner than that in 08 three and oh four uh that poaching picked up and has been on the increase for as you just said a decade wow. and um uh, frankly until COVID hit uh, and huh. that may be giving folks and rhinos a little bit of a reprieve temporarily mm-hmm. uh, yeah um interesting yeah how how has it impact how's COVID impacting your help whether it's you know been detrimental or been good in some cases how has it helped yeah i mean it's well okay yeah let's just say from the outset covid 
dinks all around for everybody on the planet. <laughs> yeah. COVID, COVID's awful. I'm not a fan. I will say that hot take right now. <laughs> not a fan. Um, uh, it is a little bit of a mixed bag when it comes to poaching. So in Southern Africa, the countries went in such a tight lockdown um, in Zimbabwe and South Africa in particular, I'm, I'm talking about that these criminal syndicates that you and I were talking about a minute ago mm-hmm. couldn't move around as easily, right? So those aren't people that live locally. Those are people that drive in in vehicles. Well, there was complete lockdown in those countries and there was pretty strong law enforcement monitoring the in-country lockdowns. So um, the criminals had a harder time moving around and frankly, moving product around. So it in those countries, it had, um, Botswana is a, a different issue, which has been having some rhino poaching, big rhino poaching issues pre-COVID and ongoing through COVID. Hmm. But in Zimbabwe and South Africa, the lockdowns actually really temporarily slow down the poaching. Now, wow. as the lockdowns are lifted a little bit, uh, we expect poaching to resume and frankly are worried about the fact that there might be some kind of rebound effect because things were slowed down. Um, However, let me talk about, so that was possibly one small upside that there was a little bit of a reprieve from poaching for a couple of months at any rate. The huge downside with COVID is the complete cessation of the tourist industry. Right. I mean, tourist industry came to a screeching halt mm-hmm. and tourism pays. Well, you, you were talking about this a little earlier in our conversation, tourism pays for conservation. It pays for the monitors. It pays for the rangers. It pays for the technology. It, it you know, it pays for the fuel for the vehicles. And so um, this has been a huge problem and is ongoing because I don't see tourism in Africa. I love to travel as much as you do. I cannot wait to get back to Africa. It's not yeah. going to happen anytime soon. And and you and I are the hardy ones that'll hop on the first plane. Yeah. And, yeah, you're right. say, you know, in general, it is going to take some time for the tourist industry to reboot and, and those um, funds just dried up overnight. Uh, so if you'll allow me to mention that yeah. uh, what the International Rhino Foundation did right as COVID was hitting and we recognized that this was going to be a huge problem, we created a reserve relief fund and we raised uh, nearly $300,000 and put out a request for proposals from reserves uh, uh, all over Africa uh, that were struggling specifically because of COVID-related economic downturn. And so we are looking at proposals on a monthly basis. We have now had two rounds of giving out grants to these reserves. Nice. You wouldn't believe the notes we're getting from the reserves, the gratitude they feel knowing that they have partners in their critical conservation work. Um, The the thank you notes that we've been receiving are bring you to tears. They're so heartwarming. And it just shows how um, desperate folks are to maintain these vital conservation programs when when the revenue is dried up and frankly in some cases they have increased costs they have increased costs um because they're undertaking certain covid precautions by the way i will say that fortunately a lot of the protection work was considered essential work so that was able to continue thank heavens 
Um, but there were added costs even for hand sanitizer and, and uh, food to keep people out in the field because we did the, this happened in Indonesia and in Africa where people would be on two week teams so that they um, and not see their family and not see other people for a few weeks to make sure that they, they weren't getting sick. And um, so it just, um, oh, it's just been devastating with the, with the drop in the economy over there. Yeah. Yeah. Again, um, kind of uh, just because I've been there most recently, my mind goes back to Uganda, uh, who actually has no population of rhinos. I know that, or at least no natural population. I think Idi Amin uh, (laughs) did away with them uh, back in the 70s. But I do know that I'm still in touch with one of the guides over there. And it's been absolutely detrimental there. And frankly, they're doing better handling it than we are uh, in the States, which is kind of an aside. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's absolutely detrimental to, to not just the species, but the people who are, um, you know, whether tour guides, people, park rangers, people who are relying on that tourism for their, right. their livelihood. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It, it impacts livelihood and, and it impacts vital conservation measures. So mm-hmm. um, it's been a challenge. We will keep up our reserve relief fund as long as we can, the need will get greater before it lessens. So we um, will continue fundraising and we'll continue reviewing proposals as we receive them and trying to help the best we can. Yeah. Um, yeah. I guess I'm really curious about like the processes. Um, like I'm always very fascinated about how species get reintroduced. Um, if that is part of the plan, I know it is for Sumatran rhinos. Um, what is the procedure for reintroduction once they've been bred in capti- captivity or relative captivity? Um, how does that pro- how does that arc look? Uh, how long does it take? How many people are involved? Um, do you have data on that? Yeah, so I should mention that there's an alliance of groups of which the International Rhino Foundation is a member and uh, with our very good partners, National Geographic and Global Wildlife Conservation and IUCN and World Wildlife Fund. Yeah, so a lot of a lot of big groups who who care about, yeah, who care about rhinos um, working on Sumatran rhino rescue. The goal of Sumatran rhino rescue is to capture rhinos, breed them in captivity, uh, like the Sumatran uh, rhino center that we have in uh, in Sumatra, and eventually release them back into the wild. We are currently tracking six rhinos uh, that we hope to capture later this year and get them in um, the Sumatran rhino sanctuary or one like that. Uh-huh. Kind of motto or the frame is survey for where the animals are, rescue them, pull them out of the wild, breed them um, in captivity, and then release them back into the wild. So while you're doing the captive breeding, which could can take years because these are slowly reproducing animals, uh, you are maintaining habitat so that you have someplace to release them gotcha. back into the wild. And uh, I, I've been involved with quite a few conservation programs of animals that were extinct or near extinct in the wild. Um, California condor, black-footed ferret, red wolf, Mexican gray wolf. Uh, so all of those, you know, species were 
pulled out of the wild, captive breeding programs released back into the wild. And there's such a huge learning curve with any one of those programs. So with black-footed ferrets, they put them out there and didn't go so well at first. And they had to kind of teach the black-footed ferrets that were raised in captivity how to hunt and, um, yep. and how, to, how to be wild ferrets again. And so th there was a learning curve there for both the humans and the ferrets. Um, you know, with Mexican gray wolves and red wolves, different set of issues. And so with rhinos, uh, as this happens over time, there will be a, there, its own unique set of issues in terms of helping them survive again in the wild. The first step, though, is getting finding them, finding reproductively viable animals, getting them in captivity, breeding them. And then, boy, the releasing is way down the road. But right. that is our that's our goal. Right. Um, and I just started thinking we should probably make a distinction between the subspecies. Right. So there's the, you know, the white rhino and then there's the northern white rhino as well. Um, well, kind of. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At least two females that are left. Yes. There yeah. are. 11, I think it is a subspecies of rhinos now. Um, but you mentioned the northern white rhino, which is nearly extinct in the wild. There are two females left. Well, they're gone from the wild. The two females are in a, a kind of a captive situation and um, there are no boys. But uh, some time ago, at least before the last male was gone, um, they did collect some semen. And so they're is a possibility of of reproductive technology uh, for that subspecies, but boy, the you know we're talking uh, challenging <laughs> techniques, you know, with challenges and rare, rare critters. Yeah, I've heard a lot of arguments for that, uh, you know, and it would be interesting. Um, It'd be cool to see, but I can imagine the challenges. I can imagine the uh, difficulties ahead of that. But hey, if we bring them back, I mean, we can also bring back the woolly rhino as well. Why not? Why stop yeah, at just one? <laughs> right. um, and me, there are people talking about bringing back some of those. I know, right? Yeah, I've seen that. Like the, the carrier <laughs> pigeons, like all sorts of different species that people right. are talking about. Right. Um. So having said this, like having talked about the ups and downs of five different species across, you know, three different continents, um, are you hopeful? Are you hopeful for the future of all species of rhinos? Do you think that there are, you know, there's a future in this world with all of them having sustainable populations and living uh, freely? Do you think that's an option? Yeah, that's a, a great question. And when one works in conservation, it is easy to get discouraged. You see some downward trends, you see bad things that people do, but you have to remain hopeful. I'm one of these people I knew from the time I was four years old, I wanted to work with wildlife and I wanted hmm. to work saving animals. Uh, that's how I thought about it when I was four, you know, <laughs> now, now I want to work in wildlife conservation. And I take hope from the success stories, the black foot of ferrets, the red, well, uh, red wolves are struggling now too, but they are, but right, they were yeah. successful <laughs> before they weren't. Yeah. Um, you know, so you take hope from the success stories. I take hope from the amazing community of 
dedicated, smart individuals working together to try to save these important and majestic animals. Uh, they're, they're so valuable, not just to the ecosystems in which they live, but I do believe it's a moral imperative for us to pass on a world to our children and grandchildren that maintains the complex and beautiful biodiversity that we inherited. It's just not right to let them go extinct on our watch. And uh, I certainly will do everything I can in my lifetime. And boy, I am in good company because there are a lot of people who care about this issue. And um, if you don't have hope, boy, you just want to crawl under the bed covers with a pint right. of Ben and Jerry. So right. you, you, have, you yeah. have to make you know. Yeah. That's my whole stance with a lot of this. First of all, you know, you probably wouldn't be doing this important work if you didn't have hope. Second of all, my big thing is I always like to leave on a positive note every podcast um, episode. Because for me, if there's no hope, then what are we doing? Let's right. just cash in. Let's give up. So I refuse to believe there's no hope. And, you know, speaking to you and speaking to other people in conservation throughout the 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 realm, um, you know, I do get, I do have hope. Um, and so it's very comforting to hear. Um, and again, a lot of that strength is within the community, within the people who, you know, the species themselves, but within the, the people who care about them. Um, so yeah, on that note, I want to thank you so much. Like when I went to South Africa, um, my wife and I, a couple of years ago, I think it was like 2015, it was one of the most incredible, uh, you know, trips of my life. Um, and I say that having like traveled pretty significantly around or substantially around Asia and around South Af uh, America, but South Africa and in particular seeing the rhinos. Um, I remember they were unfazed by this. They were completely in their own element. They were just standing watching us, um, but just so powerful yet so vulnerable at the same time. I've never seen anything like that. Like they could obviously destroy us, but they wouldn't, but yet they're being destroyed. And it's just that dichotomy, that interesting alchemy of, of strength and, and fragility. I've never really let, um, I've never really forgotten. Uh, so I do think they're an incredible species. I do think you're doing incredible work and, um, yeah, I, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. I wanted to uh, talk about real quickly about how people can help, what people can do to help you in your efforts in IR, uh, excuse me, IRF. So yes, we welcome help. We would love more partners in this endeavor. We love our supporters and our, our members and our partners. So um, so visit our website at rhinos.org. We have a Help Rhinos section right on our homepage. You can sign up for our newsletter to stay informed. You can make a donation to plant a tree in Indonesia or frankly, for, for other reasons, you can purchase uh, rhino swag on our shop. And can I just say, we have really good uh, team rhino t-shirts and sweatshirts. I started my job in May and my new staff very kindly sent me a sweatshirt and I didn't take it off for like a month and a half because we had a very cold spring. Oh, yeah. <laughs> a really cool sweatshirt. So I encourage people to check out our cool stuff on our shop. And then uh, please do follow us on social media and um, and uh, and share and share stories about rhinos and uh, be be a vocal advocate for for rhinos. 
Thank you so much, Nina, for your time. I truly appreciate it. Um, yeah, and keep doing such incredible work. Absolutely. My pleasure, Brian. I enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you. Thanks for joining. If you liked that episode, feel free to rate, view, and subscribe. That actually really helps. If you haven't seen it yet, take a look at the accompanying blog, don'tforgetyourboots.com, where you can read more and see photos for all the interviews. Until next time, take care.